Jesus is the reason for the season. This is a Christmas time slogan that we love to use, and especially in response to those who are trying to remove Christ from Christmas. You know, the people who want it to be Xmas or Happy Holidays and these sorts of things. For example, it was back in 2014, that's when the people of Piedmont, Alabama, they decided to title their annual Christmas parade, Keep Christ in Christmas. Well, in response to their decision, there was an atheist group known as the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and they sent a letter to the mayor there of Piedmont, Alabama, insisting that they ought to select a more appropriate and more inclusive theme for their holiday parade. And that's when the townspeople of Piedmont decided to change the theme from Keep Christ in Christmas to Jesus is the reason for the season. I love it. I'm certain that every Christian here this evening is happy to agree that Jesus is, in fact, the reason for the Christmas season. And yet it's sad to say that there are so many self-proclaimed Christians who fail to recognize that Jesus is not only the reason for the Christmas season, but he's also the reason for every season. Jesus is the reason for every season. Whether we're talking about the, the seasons, uh, the four seasons that we enjoy uh, you know, throughout the year, or the seasons of life that we find ourselves in. And, and while so many of us are quick to defend the right to be outspoken believers during the month of December, I can't help but to wonder how many of us are failing to recognize that the celebration of our Savior should be our primary focus, not only in December, but during every season of the year as well as every season of our lives. Here in our time tonight, we're going to explore three reasons for why we should always remember that Jesus is the reason for every season. And as we make our way through the study tonight, uh, we're going to learn, first of all, that Christmas time should remind us that Jesus Christ is the one who has created every season. Secondly, we'll consider how Christmas time should remind us that Jesus Christ consecrated every season. Thirdly and finally, we'll consider how Christmas time should remind us that Jesus Christ should be celebrated in every season. With this as the outline, if you would, let's open our Bibles first to the book of Isaiah. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Here we find God. He's prophetically promising to send his only begotten son to, to come and be our savior. And as you make your way to Isaiah 9, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Old Testament is actually filled with hundreds of prophecies, all of which were designed to help us to identify the identity of the promised Messiah. And here in Isaiah chapter 9, we find the prophet Isaiah He's helping us to understand that the coming Christ would actually be a child who would be a human baby and, and who would be born at some point in time in history. At the same time, this baby would also be the unique son of God who would be the physical incarnation of the only begotten son. And, and so with this as the focus, if you would look with me here at Isaiah chapter 9, I want to focus your attention beginning at verse 6. Here Isaiah writes, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, here in this prophecy, we find the prophet Isaiah. He's pointing us to the day when our Savior Jesus was born. 
And while we could spend the rest of our time this evening exploring the details of this verse alone, I just want to take a moment to explore just a few things found in this text, beginning with the dual nature of Jesus, or what we might call the hypostatic union of Christ. You see, according to this prophecy, the coming Christ would be both a child who was born, and at the same time, he would be a son who was given and who would also be known as mighty God. That's right, this, this child who is born and this son who is given, this, this you know, savior with two natures, is mighty God. And what this means then is that Jesus Christ is both a human child, the child of Mary, and at the same time, <clears throat> he's the everlasting son of God. Not only that, but we should also notice there where Isaiah refers to this only begotten son who is mighty God. He refers to him here as the everlasting father. Now, in my opinion, this isn't the best translation of the original Hebrew, and especially in light of biblical theology. And the reason I say this is due to the fact that most English translations seem to suggest here that the baby Jesus would be the physical incarnation of God the Father. And, and this is kind of suggested in this title, Everlasting Father. However, it's important for us to make a distinction between God the Father and God the Son, who appears to be referred to here as an everlasting Father. Now, in order to make this distinction, it'll help us to remember that God is a triune being who is co-equally and eternally the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons existing within the one Godhead eternally. Furthermore, it was the seed of the Logos, or God the Son, who was placed into the womb of the Virgin Mary. And with that being the case, it's important for us to understand that this reference to the everlasting Father here in Isaiah chapter 9, this is no basis for the heretical doctrine known as patripassianism. Uh, say that with me. Patripassianism. You don't have to say it with me. But listen, this, this heresy known as patripassianism, it's the, the, based on the belief that God the Father is the one who took on human frailty and then suffered and died on the cross as the Son. Listen, I'm here to tell you that God the Son is not the incarnation of God the Father. And there are some who teach this, uh, even here in Austin, Texas. There are churches where you can go. They teach something known as modalism or monarchianistic modalism, where they would uh, tell their congregation that the Father becomes the Son, and then the Son becomes the Holy Spirit. Uh, listen, this is, this is just straight-up heresy. We know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit coexist eternally. And, and so it's not... God the Father who became the Son and then died for our sins. No, it's the Logos who took on human frailty in the incarnation. And the first thing that I should point out here is that this Hebrew word that's translated Father here in Isaiah chapter 9, it might also be rendered originator or producer or generator. In other words, Isaiah is actually telling us here that the promised Messiah is in fact the originator or the producer of the everlasting. Or more simply put, the promised child who was born to, to the Virgin Mary was also the creator of eternity. Yeah, that's right. The, the, the child who was born is the son who was given, and the son is the everlasting creator or 
the creator of eternity. And what this means then is that Jesus was not only the beautiful baby boy who was born to the Virgin Mary, but he was also the infinite God who created the very fabric of time and space. This is exactly what John was telling us in John chapter 1. It's verse 3 where he tells us that all things were made through him, speaking of Jesus, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Christian, listen, whenever you look at the manger scenes that we love to display during the Christmas season, I hope you see the little baby Jesus lying there in the manger, and I hope you look at him for who he really is. Because listen, he's more than just a helpless baby. He's more than just the helpless little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. The baby Jesus was also the physical incarnation of the Logos of God, who is the creator of everything. In order to further grasp this, uh, the theological depth of this fact, if you would, uh, let's turn uh, to Colossians chapter 1. And as you make your way to Colossians 1, I'd like to take a moment to point out that the dual nature of Jesus is indeed a mystery. And I can't sit up here and pretend to be able to tell you how Jesus could be both 100% God and 100% man. I, I just, you know, I'm clueless. But listen, if I could explain to you everything about God, then guess what? He's not God. If I could explain the Trinity to you, well then, the Trinity being explainable uh, could be of human invention. But I can't explain the Trinity to you. It's not illogical because we're not saying that it's three gods in one God. We're saying it's three persons in one God. That's not illogical. But how do I explain it? How can I say that the, the Father, the Logos, and the Holy Spirit are, are all eternally, infinitely God? I, I don't fully grasp it. And that should be expected as we uh, attempt to make sense of an infinite God. How can a finite brain understand an infinite God? And so while we all you know, have probably taken some time to think through the Trinity and, and chances are we, we find ourselves getting to the end of our own minds and, and, and then just realizing that we really can't figure it out, that should be expected when it comes to understanding an infinite God. Listen, if you can explain your God in totality, chances are he's not God or she, whatever. But listen, I can't explain the Trinity, and I really can't explain the hypostatic union. I can just tell you what the Bible says, that Jesus Christ in his hypostatic union is 100% God and 100% man. And, and, and so, listen, the Bible is clear about this. He's 100% man, the child of Mary, and 100% God, you know, the Son of God. And while I, I might not understand you know, how God the Holy Spirit supernaturally placed the seed of God the Son into the womb of the Virgin Mary, I do understand that this physical incarnation was the best way for an invisible God to reveal himself to fallen men. Therefore, the birth of the baby Jesus was God's way of presenting himself to us in some sort of physical form that we could understand. And this is precisely the point that Paul is making here in Colossians chapter 1. Look with me there. Uh, We'll focus at verse 15. Here Paul tells us that he, he's speaking of Jesus here, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's describing Jesus as, first of all, the image of the invisible God. That's why Jesus says later, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not that he is the Father, but that he bears the image. He is the image bearer of the fullness of the Godhead. The full character of the Godhead was demonstrated and presented to us in physical form in the incarnation of Christ. In this way, he's reminding us that you know God uh, is a huge white-haired old man sitting on a golden throne. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry, that's... That's somebody else's heresy. That's not what that means at all. God is infinite in all of his attributes, and therefore he's invisible. He's infinite in all of his attributes, therefore he's immaterial, and therefore invisible. And since he is immaterial and invisible and infinite, God the Father decided to clothe his only begotten Son with human frailty through the virgin birth so that we could grasp the character and the nature of God. Isn't that incredible? That God, knowing our deficiency in, a, in getting to know him, says, I want to know you, I want you to know me, you know, and presents us with who he is through the incarnation of the only begotten son. The invisible God clothed himself with human frailty so that we could know God in, in the sort of way that we could get to know him. And at the same time, Paul also made certain that we don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus was the one who created all things. So he says, hey, he's the, the visible image of the invisible God, and then goes on to say that by him all things were created that are in heaven and earth, that are on earth, and visible or invisible and these sorts of things. All things, he says, were created through him and for him. And, and just be clear, you know, he's saying that all things that have been created were created through him. And so if, if, the, uh, if the super smart question that little kids uh, quickly arrive at is bouncing around in your head right now, and you know the question I'm talking about, well, who made God? It's a really good question. Who made God? Well, the answer is only things created need a creator. Only persons created need a creator. God is the uncreated creator. He is infinite, meaning that he's always existed. And, and I'd love to take the rest of eternity to explain this to you, but I don't think, I've, I don't think I'll, I'll have it figured out even by the end of eternity, whenever that is. So yeah, I don't understand how to explain to you how an infinite God has always existed in the past and always will exist in the future. And, and even that is incorrect terminology because God isn't just occupying a bunch of time. He just is. God simply is. He is, he is the existing one. And, and so we can either land on an infinitely existing God or we can argue for infinitely existing matter, which doesn't make any sense. Or an infinite amount of time, and if that were the case, we would have never arrived at today. None of that makes sense. And so we have to logically land on an infinitely existing God, and in his 
infinite character, he must be immaterial and invisible. But then he is also relational because he created us. And he created us to have a relationship with us. And so what is the best way for an infinite, invisible, immaterial God to have a relationship with humankind? To become a human. It's the best plan. And this was God's plan. And we see then that the infinite nature of our Savior was there in the beginning, creating everything that was created. Therefore, while Christmas time is the season when we celebrate the birth of our Savior's human nature, we must not fail to remember that Jesus is also the infinite creator who is the reason for every season, literally. He is the one who created the, the, the earth and, and placed it in its orbit uh, uh, around the sun. And, and you know, he, he's created the, the universe and he is the reason for every single season. Isn't that incredible? That being the case, we should not only celebrate Jesus Christ during Christmas time, but we should also celebrate Jesus Christ in every season of our life. And at the same time, we should also remember that Jesus Christ has actually consecrated every season as the right time to worship and serve him. To explain what I mean, if you would, let's turn to to the book of Acts now. I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 17. You see, it's here in Acts 17 where we find Paul. He's addressing a group of unbelievers who were there in Athens, Greece. And this was the place where philosophers gathered together in order to debate and discuss all of the latest philosophies. And, and that's all well and fun. But then Paul shows up here and presents the people there in Athens with the true and living God. And as you, uh, you know, are locating Acts 17, I just want to point out that you know, there are different types of seasons that we find ourselves in. For example, throughout the course of the year, we enjoy the climatic cycle that includes the four different seasons. And, and, and not only that, but then the average person also experiences seven seasons of life from the cradle to the grave. We experience fluctuating emotional seasons and we endure different financial seasons of our life. We experience laborious seasons filled with hard work as we enjoy holiday seasons then that, you know, during which we're able to relax. And, and yet, regardless of all these different seasons of life, the Lord has consecrated every season as a time for salvation and worshiping our Savior. In order to clarify what I'm trying to say here, I should point out that every single season of our earthly lives falls within the pre-appointed times and the boundaries that the Lord has ordained. And he did this when he created the world. And listen, the Lord not only determined the pre-appointed times and, and, uh, which allow for the, the seasons of our lives, but he also consecrated, or in other words, he ordained this time as the right time for us to seek a relationship with our Savior so that we might serve him. With this as the focus, I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Acts chapter 17. You know, this happens after he's kind of toured Athens and looked at all of the different idols that they had erected there for uh, the worship of all their gods. And it, it was even said by one historian that at this point in time, there were more idols in Athens than there were people. And so just imagine walking around and looking all, at all of these statues and idols that people were worshiping. And, and after just kind of uh, you know, looking at all of this, you know, uh, this idolatry, he says this here in, in Acts chapter 17. It's uh, beginning at verse 24 where Paul declares, God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, 
since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their, notice, pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that the God who created every season of life, this is the same God who also consecrated every season, and specifically for his glory. In this way, he ordained the time that we've been given so that we might spend every season of life seeking the salvation of our Savior and connecting with our Creator in a relational way. This was the whole point of the incarnation. God allowing us a chance to have a relationship with him. And with that being the case, I would argue that Christmas, the Christmas season here is the perfect time for us to refocus our lives so that we might remember that every season is the right season to point people to the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. And every season is the right season for us to serve our Savior and to walk in a relationship with him. And in order to better comprehend what I'm saying here, let's consider the response of the shepherds who went to visit the newborn Savior there in Bethlehem. If you would, let's uh, make our way now to Luke chapter 2. Here in Luke's account, uh, we find these characters known as the shepherds who are out there in the field on the night of our Savior's birth. And as you're making your way there to Luke chapter 2, I just want to remind you that these hardworking men, they didn't receive an invitation from Joseph and Mary to come and meet the baby Jesus, you know. And you know, it's not like they were at the hospital and they sent out, you know, texts, come on down to the hospital, you know, bring your cigars and uh, let's celebrate the, the birth of the baby Jesus. It wasn't like that. No, instead the shepherds who made their way to the nativity story, they, 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 they were supernaturally invited by a choir of angels. And it's here in this gospel account where Luke presents us with the details of their testimony. So look with me here at Luke chapter 2. We'll begin reading at verse 8 where Luke writes, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day, in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And here in these verses, we find this group of shepherds. They, they just simply drop everything they, they were doing after watching this incredible angelic musical. And, and uh, you know, here they're watching these angels singing the praises of our Savior and introducing this, this information about the birth of our Savior, and they just drop everything. Like we don't even know what they did with their sheep here. We don't, we don't know exactly how they managed you know, the, the business that they were in the middle of. 
They were guarding their flocks. They knew that their jobs were, were, were important and yet less than important when it comes to the birth of our Messiah. They dropped everything. And, and they focused their attention on searching this location where the, the baby Jesus would be found. And so they decided that the best thing that they could do with their time was to go out and proclaim the good news after they found the Lord Jesus lying in that manger just as the angels had, had told them. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at Luke chapter 2. We'll pick up at verse 17. Here Luke writes this. He says, now when they had seen him, so they, so they found the babe lying in the manger, and when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Here we find Luke, he's describing the way that these shepherds reacted to the realization that the promised Messiah had been born. And again, we don't know if the sheep were still in the fields. Maybe they're getting eaten by wolves. We don't know. Who knows what happened to the sheep? These shepherds forgot about their, their jobs, they forgot. About, you know, they, they weren't worried about getting fired. They, they simply went into Bethlehem and said, hey, the Messiah's been born, come check it out. They recognized that this was the season that Jesus had consecrated for his miraculous birth. And they also realized that there was no time like the present to start serving their Savior, and so they did. Unfortunately, this is the last time we hear from these excited shepherds. I I wish that I could tell you more about their story. And and we we don't really know. Did they continue serving Jesus? Did did, did they become one of his disciples? We we can't really say for sure. But I can't help but to consider how their faith may have been a flash in the pan. And, And the reason I say this is because I've seen it happen so many times. That someone, you know realizes that the Lord Jesus is the incarnation of, of the Logos of God. They come to the realization that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. They come to the realization you know, that, that we ought to commit our lives to serving our Savior. And there's a, a, a short season of their life where they're on fire for Jesus, but it's just a flash in the pan. I've seen many new believers completely excited to to focus on Jesus Christ, but then the worries of the world come in, you know, business deals, you know, take, you know, take, take their attention, relationships. Next thing you know, they're just kind of, uh, you know, looking elsewhere to things that they consider to be more important. If this flash in the pan faith sounds like something that you're wrestling with, uh, please consider what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There he encouraged every Christian to, to be steadfast, to be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our labor here in this world might be completely in vain because there's coming a day when the world and the works in it will be burned up, it will dissolve with fervent heat. They call it global warming or something. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, there's coming a day when, when this universe is going to melt with fervent heat and all of the secular works that we engaged in will be burned up. But everything that we did in the Lord, everything that we did to serve our Savior will be transferred into everlasting rewards. 
The true believer should always be serving the Lord regardless of the season of life. And the reason why is because Jesus is the reason for every season and not just the Christmas season. He's consecrated every season of life as the right time to seek him and to serve him. If you really want to recognize the birth of our Savior this Christmas season, I applaud you. And yet I encourage you to remember that you know once Christmas is over and once you put the tree away and take down the lights and all the stuff that you did for the sake of the celebration, don't forget, Jesus is still the reason for the season in January and February and March and April and May and June and July, but not August. August is clearly the devil's month. Jesus should be celebrated every season because he's consecrated the seasons for this very reason. And this brings us to our third and final point. You see, Christmas time should not only remind us that Jesus created every season, and Christmas time should not only remind us that Jesus consecrated every season for his glory. But Christmas time should also remind us that Jesus Christ is to be celebrated in every season. And with this as the focus, let's make our way to the book of Romans. If you would, let's, let's go to Romans uh, chapter 14. Here we find Paul dealing with the Christians in Rome who were apparently arguing about debatable days and these sorts of things. And as you make your way there to the 14th chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to consider the debatable day that we call Christmas. You see, there are many Christians who love to celebrate the birth of our Savior on December the 25th. At the same time, you know, the serious student of the Scriptures will quickly recognize that the Bible never actually presents us with the birth date of the baby Jesus. You, you can't turn to chapter and verse and say, aha, you know, here, in, in, in second opinions, it says, you know, December the, the 25th. No, it's, it's, it's not found in the scriptures. We, we, we aren't given the date of our Savior's birth because it does not matter. If it mattered, it would be there. If it was important, we would find it in the scriptures. But, uh, you know, the Lord doesn't see the date itself as being that important. Now, we've made it important, and I don't think there's a problem with that. I, don't, I, I personally don't have an issue with the church saying, okay, December 25th, we're going to celebrate the birth of our Savior on December the 25th. That's fine. I, I don't think that God's up in heaven going, how dare they? You know, it wasn't December, it was April the, the, the 12th, you know. No, I, I don't think there's an issue. But some concerned Christians are attempting to convince us that it's wrong to celebrate Jesus' birth on December 25th. Like, they'll, they'll sit here and, and just, you know engage in arguments on, on how it's not this date, it's another date, or it doesn't matter, or, or, or it's idolatry to engage in this, this sort of celebration. Listen, I, if you have an issue with December the 25th being a celebration of our Savior's birth, don't celebrate it. If you love celebrating the birth of Jesus on December the 25th, have fun with it. You know, Praise the Lord on that day. Either way, though, we shouldn't be dividing with one, and o, uh, with one another over these debatable things. And, and to make my case, look with me here at Romans chapter 14. I want to focus your attention there at verse 5. Here Paul writes, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, 
And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Rome to understand that they were free, but not required to esteem one day as more important than another. And the reason why is because every day is the right day to celebrate the salvation that Jesus has secured for us. Therefore, if you want to celebrate the birth of Jesus on December the 25th, then by all means, observe that day unto the Lord and celebrate the birth of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the, the, that the Lord is glorified in our celebration. But if you would rather not treat one day as being more important than another, and, and you want to just kind of say, that well, all, we're, I'm going to celebrate the birth of Jesus on all the days of the year. Uh, you know, I mean, I would just say that, uh, you know, keep a lot of water under the tree. You know, but, uh, <laughs> but seriously, you know, like if you want to celebrate one day, or all the days. If you want to celebrate Jesus on, on a specific day of the year for a specific reason, or you want to avoid all that altogether, just be convinced in your own mind, and at the same time, give room for the person who actually has a different opinion than, than you. It's okay. It's not something for us to, deb- to debate about or divide over. Paul was encouraging the Christians there in Rome to stop dividing over debatable issues like this. And so if you're a Christian who thinks that it's wrong to recognize the birth of Jesus on December the 25th, that's fine. I, I personally am very sensitive to people who have issues like that, which is why you know we don't put up a Christmas tree here in the church, because I realize that that's offensive to some Christians, that, that they take issue with that. And it's like, okay, I mean... You know, I I wish we weren't so sensitive about these things, but there are some who are, and I I want to respect those Christians. And at the same time, I realize that there are other Christians who love to celebrate Christmas, and they look forward to it. And so we put out the poinsettias because, you know, that's what Jesus would do. But, uh... (laughs) So whatever your conviction is, make sure that you're glorifying God. And then give room for the other Christians who have a different opinion about it. We haven't been called to judge one another over these debatable things, and there's no reason for us to divide over them. If you love the Christmas season, you can't wait to celebrate the birth of our Savior on this traditionally prescribed date, then just make sure you're doing so out of respect for one another and, and, and especially for those who don't share the same sentiments. And regardless of which camp you fall into, I'll remind you that every day is the right day to celebrate our Savior. Every day is the right day to celebrate Jesus Christ. With this as the focus, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Here we find Paul. He's encouraging the Christians in Ephesus toward that very end. And as you make your way to the fifth chapter of Ephesians, I just want to take a a moment to connect a few dots here. Because listen, if Jesus created every season of life, and if Jesus consecrated every season of life for his glory, well then it only stands to reason that Jesus ought to be celebrated in every season of our life because he is the reason for every single season. Therefore, 
as we find ourselves at this year's Christmas parties or family get-togethers, please just remember that Jesus is the reason why we're celebrating. And with that, we ought to make sure that our celebration actually brings glory to God. You see, not every celebration actually brings glory to God. There are celebrations that could offend the Lord. And so we want to make sure that our celebrations are actually in line with the sort of celebration that the Lord would be pleased with. And this is precisely the point that Paul is making here in Ephesians chapter 5. Look with me there beginning at verse 17. Here Paul writes, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's encouraging every Christian to avoid the path of drunkenness that that come from the spirits of alcohol. That in our celebrations, whether we're talking Christmas or what any other celebration, that drunkenness should not be a part of it. And he also tells us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see, there are a slew of secular songs that are very offensive to the Lord. And they ought to be offensive to us too. And yet, you know, Christians seem to just disregard this when, when it comes time to the karaoke party and all of a sudden you're singing songs about the devil. Well, that's not, that's not in line with what the scriptures say. We shouldn't be getting drunk, and we shouldn't be singing songs that are in conflict with the Word of God. Instead, we ought to be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we can celebrate our Savior's birth, singing the praises of God rather than you know, singing you know, godless secular songs and, and singing with sobriety rather than drunk on wine and these sorts of things. Not only that, but according to Paul, we ought to be giving thanks to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ rather than grumbling about you know, maybe what we didn't get or what we couldn't afford or, or you know, what, what we wished it would have been, but it couldn't be because of these sorts of things and all the horrible people that stopped us from having the right celebration. And the, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be grumbling and complaining. We should be celebrating with a heart of gratitude. And it's there in verse 20 where Paul tells us that we, we should be giving thanks always. How often is always? It's always. All the time. It doesn't say giving thanks sometimes. Giving thanks when it works out in your way. Giving thanks you know, when, when, when you feel good about it. We should be giving thanks always and for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should celebrate with gratitude as we consider the grace of God. And I like the way that Paul put it in Hebrews 13. It's verse 15 when he declares, Therefore by him... Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. In other words, Paul was telling us that we should be offering to God the sacrifice of praise, being thankful today 
and always and forever. What this means then is that every season is the right season to celebrate the birth of our Savior. Therefore, regardless of what you believe about the date of Jesus' birth, whether you think it actually happened on December 25th or not, I believe that Christians ought to take full advantage of every Christmas party we go to by treating Christmas time as the right time to celebrate the birth of our Savior as we sing the praises of the one who is the reason for every, se- for every season. Now as we begin to wrap up this special message, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Christmas time, it should remind us that Jesus Christ created every season. He's the creator, and he's created every single season. Therefore, Christmas time should also remind us that Jesus Christ has consecrated every season for his glory. Not for our glory, for his glory. Christmas time is not about us. It's about Jesus. And listen, that's not to suggest that we shouldn't exchange gifts. You know, you guys can get me all the gifts you want to get me this Christmas. I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But seriously, I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with exchanging gifts in celebration of the greatest gift, which is Jesus Christ, so long as we're not forgetting that it's really not about us receiving gifts or giving gifts, but rather it's about the gift, Jesus Christ. And finally, Christmas time should remind us that Jesus Christ should be celebrated in every season, not just December the 25th. We should constantly celebrate the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of our Savior because it's by faith in Jesus Christ that we too are saved. That being the case, I encourage every Christian to remember that the season that we currently find ourselves in, it's the season that the Lord has ordained for his perfect purpose. And you're wondering, in this economy? Yeah. Yeah, this is the season. This is the season that he's ordained for this celebration. And so we should celebrate with thanksgiving even in this economic situation. What about the concerns of 2024? Oh, this is going to be the worst year ever. This is going to be the worst of the worst. And I've got a long list of all the different reasons why 2024 will be our worst year ever. So let's go through this list right now over the next 30 minutes. And (laughs) some of us are like, yeah, go through the list. And others are like, no, I don't want to hear this. Chances are most of us have concerns about, let's just start with one, the wars that are already underway. And and many believe that this is shaping up to become World War III. We've got the war in Ukraine. We've got the war that's happening there in the land of promise. And, And as we consider the war that's happening there in the Middle East, you know, it's for this reason that Christian leaders there in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, they recently agreed just last month to, to, to work with the municipal authorities there in Bethlehem to cancel their annual Christmas festivities, which include the lighting of the manger square tree. They've canceled all the public Christmas celebrations there in Bethlehem. And, and all of this as an expression of solidarity with those who are currently suffering as a result of, uh, of the current conflict that they're in the middle of. And like I get the sentiment of this solidarity and all, but I'd like to suggest that Christians ought to be celebrating our Savior regardless of the season that we find ourselves in. 
whether the economy is a bust or, or whether you know, the, you know, the, the, the money's coming in, whether we're in a time of peace or whether we're in a time of war. Regardless of the situation that's happening in the world, Christians ought to be celebrating our Savior in every season. Remember, the shepherds went out and shared the good news about the birth of Jesus Christ during the days of the Roman occupation of Israel. Jesus Christ was born. The shepherds went and found him lying in the manger. And then they were like, man, we should go out and tell people about this. We ought to celebrate this in some way. But, you know, the Romans are occupying Israel, and so this is just not the right time. Let's just, you know, kind of cancel everything out of solidarity. For you. Listen. Telling people about Jesus and bringing people's focus to our Savior ought to happen regardless of what else is happening in this world. Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the days when Israel was under Roman occupation, and that was the season that God the Father chose to send his only begotten Son. And so I get it. There's all kinds of conflict in the world. There's all these reasons for why we should silence our celebration. And I say, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate, let's glorify the Lord, and let's tell people about Jesus Christ. This is not the time to allow political situations to silence our faith in Jesus Christ. And in light of the example set by the shepherds, I encourage every Christian to realize that the Lord Jesus has a purpose for the political upheavals that he is currently allowing. And oftentimes, people come to faith in Jesus Christ in these certain times. And so let's, let's go tell the world about Jesus. Let's celebrate the birth of our Savior Let's follow in the footsteps of the shepherds by assuring every person this Christmas season that Jesus is our Savior. And what's even more is that Jesus is the reason for every season. Let's pray.